John 19. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Amen and amen to the precious history that we have in John 19. From thenceforth, in verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. Again, we read a statement that Pilate wanted to let Jesus go, and we're told from thenceforth. And that's from the little explanation about Pilate's unique situation by having authority over the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 11, which I referred to before we took our break. But the Jews cried out against Pilate, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Now, this was their worst statement they had made thus far. Thus far, they had slandered Jesus of sedition against Caesar, against paying taxes, against the Roman government. Now they are slandering Pilate of sedition against Caesar and against the Roman government. And he couldn't bear it. It threatened his career. It threatened his income. It threatened his life for you to be guilty of sedition against Caesar. But the Jews cried out, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. This is important information, for it tells us how the Jews manipulated Pilate into his final sentencing. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like it is right here in the Gospel of John. Luke recorded how the Jews slandered Jesus about paying Roman taxes, and they knew that Jesus had taught they were to pay Roman taxes, because they had sent men out to try to trap Jesus, and he had taught them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. But now they realize Pilate does not care what they say about Jesus. They realize that. I find no fault in him at all. Your witnesses don't agree. I don't care what you say. You're, he's only here on your behalf because of envy. Herod couldn't find anything wrong with him. And so because they weren't making any headway and they wanted to get this over with as soon as they could, they now slander Pilate. You're guilty of sedition if you let him go. It's not he's seditious. You need to put him to death. It's you're going to be guilty of sedition if you don't kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Because whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. We come to verse 13. Yes, there's many more things that could be said, but you can understand verse 12 with that explanation. And there's more if you want it. 
Do you want want me to go and preach a whole sermon on paying taxes to the government because of Jesus' brilliant de facto argument that he used in Matthew 22 and other places when they came to trap him and they couldn't trap him at all? Do you know what it says about those men that came to trap him after he gave them a lesson in economic and political theory? It says they marveled. And they didn't want to ask him any more questions. I love our Lord. The Bible says in prophecy that God was going to give him the tongue of the learned. And he had it. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying. What saying? Pilate heard what they said in verse 12. That if you let Jesus go, you are not Caesar's friend. You are not supporting Caesar. You're supporting another man claiming to be king. And anyone claiming to be king is against Caesar. So you're against Caesar by implication and association with this man you want to free. What hypocrisy. What was Herod's title? Yeah. Anyone that makes himself a king? The Romans made men kings in the Palestine area just for titles to honor them. And there was a man that was a do you see that? I just want you to see the hypocrisy at everything. Every sentence out of their mouths is hypocritical and wrong. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, that he was going to be guilty of sedition, and they could report him to Caesar, that he was supporting another king against the Roman government, he sat down in the judgment seat. This location wasn't just the judgment hall. This was the judgment seat where this governor would sit and rule against or for men's lives. He could release or condemn Barabbas. He could release or condemn Jesus ordinarily. But Jesus was in his hands for a special purpose, and that was to die for you and me. Reader, listener, brothers, sisters, anyone listening to this sermon, see Pilate in his judgment seat condemning Jesus. Realize that Pilate will stand before Jesus in his judgment seat and will receive sentence from the judge of the quick and the dead. Did you hear in those passages that we had read that God has appointed Jesus to be the judge of quick and dead? That's those that are alive at his coming and those that are already dead. They're all going to stand before God and give an account of their lives and he will judge them. It tells us that this judgment seat was in a place called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. This special judgment area that had this seat in which Pilate would sit to adjudicate a case. This is when he would sentence. This is when he would come to his conclusion was in a place called the pavement because it was paved with smooth square stones to set it apart from the rest of that judgment hall. And so John, who loves details, wants us to know that it was called the pavement in Latin and Greek that it was a special place of paver stones where the seat sat that Pilate would judge from and it was set apart from the rest of that judgment hall that would have been just of some baser material for the floor covering. This is called the pavement. But in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, it had a different name in the Hebrew for a different aspect of it. That's why there's a but there. It doesn't say which by interpretation is such and such. It says, but in the Hebrew, it's Gabbatha, and Gabbatha means elevated. So it was a special place with smooth, beautiful stones, mosaic stones laid out for a seat to be set on it, but it was elevated. 
Gabbatha in the Hebrew is elevated for the presence of Pilate sitting as judge. Notice the use of the disjunctive but to see that there's two words and two meanings to be understood there in that clause. The Romans and or others called their seat of judgment the pavement in Greek for being paved with paver stones. And the Hebrew has for this seat, Gabbatha, for meaning it's elevated. And this was interesting to read a little bit about America's benches. You know, that bench or bar that you see when you enter a courtroom where the, the judge sits behind it is all laid out very carefully, which I did not appreciate until preparing for this message on how carefully it is laid out and prepared and the risers and the inches, the inches of every part of it. From a small courtroom to a medium to a large. America's benches are up three risers or three steps in a small court, which means 18 to 21 inches or 24 to 26 inches in a larger courtroom. The height is planned carefully for the judge to be above eye level of average lawyers and to be able to see the whole room. It's all laid out by design. If you have a six-foot lawyer standing on the floor, the risers and the seat, remember he's seated, seated on sufficient risers, his eye level is above the eye level of the attorneys approaching the bench because he's the one in charge. It's just beautiful. There is a four-inch privacy bar that goes around his work surface, his desktop, so that the counselors cannot see his paperwork and what he's working on, all by design. I was thrilled to read about it, to know that the Romans had already got that into place with the word Gabbatha, because Pilate was elevated. And they're very careful about it, because they never want a judge in our courts to look like a talking head. His desk can't be too high and his chair too low, or he would just be a head talking behind the bar, and they don't want that. They want some of him showing because it's his profile here that's the judge and the authority in that court. It's beautiful. Pilate had the same situation made for him in Jerusalem. The front view of that bar is uh, about 56 inches, 22 for the riser height, 30 for the desk. Remember, a desktop is 30 inches off the floor, and four for a privacy rail. And with his seat on that raised floor, his eyesight is above the attorney's. And he has a view that he can see the whole court. If it's a larger courtroom, they just elevate him a few more inches so that his angle, he can see everyone in the courtroom. But anyway, Pilate was sitting on his seat, called a judgment seat. And the Bible has a judgment seat for Jesus Christ. And I never think that there's a wasted word in the Bible. And so when it says Pilate sat in his judgment seat and we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, it doesn't surprise me and I love it. Pilate will appear before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ is a terrifying scene as Revelation chapter 20 tells us. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that heaven and earth will flee away from the face of the judge on that throne. Heaven and earth will flee away. From that judge, and all the dead will be gathered from every place that they might be and stand before that throne. That day's coming. But this, this throne is Pilate's in Jerusalem on the pavement, elevated for the sake of making a judgment. And then John inserts in verse 14 it was the preparation of the Passover. 
That means the day before the feast, preparing for the feast on the first Sabbath day, the 15th day of the month of the seven-day feast called the Passover. I am not going to repeat all that I have done trying to help you understand that the word Passover means more than just having a lamb for supper. It means a whole seven-day feast. And the day after that lamb, remember the evening first, then the day is the 14th. They ate it on the 14th evening first because the evening and the morning were the first day. Jewish reckoning is the night first, then the day. They ate it on time on the 14th, and that day that Jesus hung on the cross was the 14th, the day following the evening. The next day was going to be the first Sabbath day, not weekly Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Passover, a high Sabbath day in which they would have a feast that the Bible tells us about, and they were making preparation for that. They weren't making preparation to kill the lamb for supper. Verse 14, in about the sixth hour. Oh, here we go. I am not going to take your time. It's in the outline. I'm just going to tell you this. This is one of the number one complaints of skeptics against the Bible. Because here, John 19 and 14, Jesus hasn't even been condemned to crucifixion yet. Pilate is still negotiating terms with the Jews. Pilate's still trying to release him. You know, now it's saying Pilate is sitting down and is about to sentence him. And it's the sixth hour. So holding your place there, flip back to Mark, and I'm only going to take a couple minutes. If you want to read links and read reasoning, it's in the outline. Mark is going to give us quite a different time. And all skeptics and atheists and Bible haters have jumped on this for only 2,000 years. Mark 15. Do you know where we ended our reading? So that we would match John 19, 1 through 16. We ended it at Mark 15, 20. Because notice it says, and led him out to crucify him, which is what we're going to have in verse 16. But then, let me read. And they compel one, Simon Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine, mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots about them, upon them, what every man should take, and it was about the third hour. Wait a minute. This has a whole lot of events transpiring, and Jesus on the cross, and Mark is saying it's the third hour. Jesus hasn't even been sentenced yet in John 19, and John says it was the sixth hour. Now the Jews looked at three, the third hour as 9 a.m., and the sixth hour as 12 p.m. Noonday. Noon. And here's Mark describing events later than John. Did you follow that? Mark is describing events later than John, saying it was the third hour or 9 a.m. John is saying it's the sixth hour or 12 p.m. What a mess. And if you want to read more, look at the outline. No, that's, I, 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 won't, I won't do that to you. <laughs> there are men that have, they love the word of God and they practice believing Bible study. That wonderful defender of the King James Version, Edward F. Hills from Harvard, 
that became a defender of the King James Bible. He wrote a book called Believing Bible Study. That means we believe what God says, and whatever we have to do, we will work out a possible solution to make all the Bible fit together. I love that man. I have put little biographical sketches of him in updates over the years. Men have looked at the, the watches of the day and the night. Jews and Romans had four watches of the day, four watches of the night, three-hour segments. The time from 6 a.m. in the morning until 9 a.m. in the morning was called the first watch, the next three hours, second watch, third watch, fourth watch, and they would call them by different names. They would sometimes call them by the first hour that started that watch instead of the watch. This is what some men have done. This is not my favorite method of resolving this. I'm just telling you. And so if you go and, and you go and play with those a little bit, and knowing that they didn't keep time like we keep time, do you understand that you have something on your watch that is cut on your wrist that is somewhat unique in the history of the world at being able to measure hours exactly and minutes exactly and seconds exactly? They didn't have that. They may have had sundials in a place or two here or there, which was changing every day because of the sun's movement in the sky. But they, were, they didn't keep track of time like we did. But here's a better explanation. You can read more about that. You can read links on looking at the watches of the day. I don't buy it. I buy this one. Mark used Jewish timing, which started at 6 a.m. So when he said the third hour, he's talking about 9 a.m. John, and for a number of reasons that are beyond this sermon, but are in the outline... I'll be happy to discuss them with anyone. John is using Roman timing. Where did John write from? Does anybody remember? He wrote from Ephesus. He was part, it was the capital of Asia Minor of the Roman Empire. And there's other internal evidences in the Gospel of John that John used time like the Romans used time, and they started from midnight, like we do. We start counting... Instead of 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., which actually makes more sense, the Jewish system of doing it, they do, they, they do it from midnight, just like we do. So when John says the sixth hour, what time is he talking about? 6 a.m. And what does John say? It was about 6 a.m. Could it be 6.30? Could it be 5.30? Could it be 6.40? Sure it could. It's about 6 a.m. in the morning. Then we have Pilate on his judgment seat, sentencing Jesus, and about 9 a.m., they get all these other things done in between, and Jesus on the cross, and matches up with Mark. That is the best explanation. Now you say, why do we need explanations like that in the Bible? Because God wrote his Bible to confuse men and to give skeptics the rope they want to hang themselves by not right. believing it. Right. And I believe it. I, listen, I could believe it by saying... They didn't have time like we have it, and they're both true. And just blow it all off, because it doesn't really matter to me. I know that Jesus was crucified in the morning, and all the Gospels agree on when the darkness was over the earth. The darkness was over the earth after he was already on the cross, and it was from the 12th hour, Jewish, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, until the ninth hour, which was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. All of them agree on that. There are certain minds that would love to dig into this, and you're welcome to do it. It has been used for 2,000 years against the Bible, and for 2,000 years men have had explanations for it. 
And I have put some of those links in the outline so that you can read the men that have found John's use of Roman timing versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke with their Jewish timing. So what we have is Jesus is before Pilate and he's about to be sentenced at 6 a.m. in the morning by Roman timing and Mark is recording something quite a bit later and Mark records it with Jewish timing as the third hour of the day being 9 a.m. in the morning. So John can use the bigger number, which you would think is going to be later in the day, but it's coming from a different starting point. It's midnight of the Romans, so it's 6 a.m. Mark is using the Jewish reckoning of time. It's the third hour, meaning 9 a.m. Makes great, makes fine sense. Makes fine sense as to how that happened. And so there about 9 o'clock, Jesus is on the cross. Could Jesus be on the cross for six hours? There's nothing that says he couldn't be on the cross for six hours. The only way that you would cut down his six hours on the cross is to understand that verse you're looking at right now as being Jewish timing. Then you can't have him on the cross before 12 or 1. Because it's the sixth hour and he's still standing in front of Pilate. Right. Oh, You know, I just took a few minutes with you, but I put hours into this and there's links for you and you can have fun until you're content. You can have fun until... You know, you know what the internet has today? We are, we are very blessed, but it's very troubling because you have to read so much to find something good, but we can go and search anything out. And there are men for the last 2,000 years that were practiced believing Bible study, and they were going to prove that it fit one way or another. And some of them were more honest. You're going to read some things that you're going to say, that is wrong. That man's lying to make the Bible fit. That was verse 14. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. Pilate has now sat down the judgment seat. Jesus is there. He says, this is your king, and I'm going to sentence judgment on him because you have pushed me by slandering me that I could be an enemy of Caesar. Verse 15. And they cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Listen to that. Listen to their screams at being unsatisfied that Pilate had punished him and Pilate had declared him to be innocent of all their charges. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. What a lie. They hated Caesar being their king, and they couldn't wait for another Judas Maccabees or the Messiah himself to come along and get rid of that king called Caesar. But they'll say anything to get Pilate. They are, they are showing in front of Pilate, we are loyal Roman subjects, and you are not, because you're allowing a man to go that's claimed to be king. They put enormous pressure on him, and he crumbled. And we're not surprised because he didn't show any faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ had said to him or anything, any of the other evidence that was produced. Verse 16, Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. That is not unto the Jews. The Jews didn't do the crucifying. That was his centurions and legionnaires that went and executed it for him. You're going to see that in several of the Gospels, a plural pronoun like that, and you'll think, well, that's a, no, it's not the Jews. The Jews didn't crucify him. Pilate's soldiers crucified him, but they were the ones that executed his sentence, and his sentence is right there in verse 16, then delivered he him. Then delivered he him. Pilate delivered Jesus to his soldiers to go and crucify him. There was a centurion in charge of that event, not Jewish, 
men, there was a Roman in charge of his crucifixion. And so by his reasoning and their threatening that he was guilty of sedition, Pilate sentenced him to be crucified. Nations differ widely in the world of how they, cru- how they execute men for capital punishment. I've been over that before. I mentioned to you last Lord's Day how a guillotine would certainly be a whole lot nicer than dying by crucifixion on a Roman cross. That weighted blade coming down on an angle with a, with a heavy weight behind it, with a slot made for it, would be pretty nice. Way to go. You wouldn't feel a thing. You'd be gone. Your head would be off and in a basket. Crucifixion was nothing like that. If Jesus was on that cross for six hours, five hours, four hours, it doesn't matter uh, how accurate Mark was with his third hour at being 9 a.m. in the morning, realizing their inadequate timekeeping mechanisms, but the Lord inspired that, so we believe that it could have been, easy, it could have been six hours. And there was darkness over the earth from 12 to 3, but he was there. What torture he went through for those six hours. Having to push yourself up on that nail through your, the nails through your feet to push yourself up to be able to get any air and to be able to breathe for six hours. You would have to slide a number of inches every time to get a breath. It was torture on a Roman cross. And that comes up in the next verses, and it's in Psalm 20. Psalm 22 is the most graphic, the most detailed account by prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ dying a crucifixion death. The Gospels actually don't spend very many verses on it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't spend very many verses describing exactly what Jesus went through, but Psalm 22 has more of them. The Bible is clear that details of Jesus' death were determined by God. And he chose crucifixion so that Jesus would be lifted up from the earth. That's why there was a brazen serpent in the wilderness of Israel. That's why Jesus said what he said about being lifted up from the earth. You know, in the USA, we shoot them. We've shot them in the past with firing squads. We've poisoned them with lethal injections. We've electrocuted them. We're so humane. But Rome wasn't, and Rome crucified him. Crucifixion was a a brutal way to die. The word excruciate, excruciating, what does that mean to you? Is it, what is, what is the pain scale from one to ten? <coughs> I love the brother up here at the front. It's an eleven. Excruciating. You know where that word comes from in the Latin? That's a Latin word. X is an intensive in front of crusare, from crucem, meaning crucifixion, a death like or by crucifixion with an intensive in Latin added to it, excruciating. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ went through for you and me. The Bible does not detail our Lord's suffering, so we do not need to specialize in it, but we want to realize everything that he went through for us, which I have tried to do with the balance of God's word. Psalm 22 is the most graphic description of it. And they took Jesus and led him away. John 19 and verse 16. We have had a chapter and a half of arrest, trial, trial, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Pilate. The sentence has been given. 
that Jesus is to die by crucifixion for Pilate to save his own skin at the cost of the skin of the man he feared might be the son of God he knew was a king and he absolutely knew had no fault in him at all worthy of death. And they took Jesus and led him away out of sight, out of mind. It's a true idiom. Out of sight, out of mind. It's a terrible sin of depraved men. Pilate no longer had to see, question, or hear Jesus further. Like all hearers of preachers, in just minutes, you'll be able to get rid of the sound of my voice. You'll be able to get rid of every moment, every aspect of the moment of truth that we've had today. Felix did the same thing, though trembling, with Paul's sober warning. Agrippa was able to put Paul on a ship and forget about his near conversion to Christianity. Elijah would not allow Israel to equivocate. How long halts she between two opinions? Faithful ministers will not let you escape, though you can scorn them or leave them. And we don't care if you do either. But we're not going to let you escape that you faced a moment of truth and you'll give an account for that moment of truth. Pilate, they led him away. And you're going to go away. And I'm going to go away. And the moment of truth we've had before the word of God will dissipate. And we're going to, our senses will be assaulted outside this room. We will have so many things that we need to do. We will hear things, see things, smell things, taste things, touch things. And there will be people talking to us, texting us, calling us, meeting us, driving by us. We're going to be around. And it's going to dissipate. Out of sight, out of mind. And so you can forget about this until Wednesday night. Or you can forget about it until next Sunday. Don't be like Pilate and let that happen. We want to remember these things. What will you think later, sinner, if you neglect Jesus, the Son of God, that is in your way today, that's in front of you, in the Word of God? What will you think later, Christian, if earthly things control you, you are an enemy of the cross of Christ? Take heed, therefore, how ye hear, were Jesus' words to his own apostles. We have looked at John 19, 1 through 16. It is the true record of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth laying down his life for his sheep. It should move you, and it should move you to want to serve him with your life, and to embrace him and love him, and to share your knowledge of him with your children, with your spouse, with others that you meet, to go to him in prayer and thank God for the gift of his son, and to read the word of God, to see everything you can learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless us to do that. Amen. We're going to sing one song before we have communion. I'm going to tell you about that song before we sing it. You have a handout at your seat, I hope. I have many more up here if we're short. The song is entitled, Lead Me to Calvary. Calvary is where they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Communion is to remember his death until he comes for us. 1 Corinthians 11, at verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he brake it, speaking of the bread, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this is do in 
remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. Communion is to remember his death until he comes for us. It's, a very, it's very simple. It's very simple. We just believe it by faith. That little piece of bread, broken from a whole piece, that little bit of wine distributed to us, his body, his flesh, and his blood by faith. That's what he asks. It's so simple, it seems to beg the question, could it have any value in heaven? But it does have value in heaven, and we believe it by faith. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Communion is to remember his death until he comes for us. Three sermons were preached in 2011. May, never forget. For we are so prone to forget. Which sermons contain many examples, rules, and warnings from the Bible about forgetting God's works. Because the Bible, you know Israel forgot and forgot and forgot and forgot. And the Lord punished them and punished them and punished them and punished them for forgetting what he had done for them earlier in their history. But the greatest event recorded in the Bible is what God did for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We should never forget that. The Bible warns us about the most important person in his work that we can't forget, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, my favorite psalm, Psalm 45, about the Lord Jesus Christ as a king, ends with this verse. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. There's only one legacy that I want as your pastor. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. That is how David concluded Psalm 45. That is verse 17, the last verse of Psalm 45. Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And he's talking about the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was Hebrews 1 all about? God speaking to us by his son. And that son was greater than the angels. And that son was God. And that son was righteous and hated iniquity. And we get to chapter 2. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. That is a choice that you make. Every one of you can gird up the loins of your mind and shut down all the little infantile thoughts that are circulating there and think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lest at any time we should let these things slip. There is in all of our flesh, including mine, an animosity against Jesus Christ. I know that I am depraved and that total depravity means hatred of Jesus Christ by the lack of interest that my flesh has in Jesus of Nazareth. I can get excited about anything in comparison to him. And so it's a matter of faith to humble myself before the word of God 
and tell myself that my thoughts are insanely ridiculous and rebellious by ignoring the Lord Jesus Christ and letting those things slip. You have a song in front of you. Jane Hussey was born in 1874, 150 years ago in New Hampshire. She began writing poems as a child. The first were published when she was 13. Two years, Brigida. At 16, she began to write other things. In 1888, her first hymns were published, which would mean she was 24 years old when her first hymns were published. She was a fifth-generation Quaker. She suffered from severe arthritis and spent most of her life caring for an invalid sister. Later in life, she went to the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Concord, New Hampshire, to be baptized as a Baptist. She said, I want everyone to know about me that I love Jesus. One day when she was suffering particularly wor worse than other days, she prayed, Please, Lord, make me willing to bear my cross daily without complaining because you bore yours for me. That is verse 4 of the song you have before you. She started with verse 4 because it was a prayer. In the next few days, she added what are now verses 2 and 3. Only later, after these verses of humble submission and desire for the Lord Jesus Christ, did she add the triumphant op opening of the personal commitment, which first 13 words should excite any saved person. And I believe I shared this with you in 2011. Those first 13 words... Light me up. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Notice the song's emphasis on the danger of forgetting four things. Verse 1, lest I forget thy thorn-crowned brow. The chorus Lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Remembering those things changed Paul. Paul was the apostle he was because he remembered those things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, The love of Christ constraineth me. Right. And, and we, we judge this way. If one died for all, then all were dead, and he which died for them should get the rest of their lives in service to him. It was just a logical equation to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The thought is so scriptural, lead me to Calvary. Take me to Calvary so I won't forget Gethsemane. Take me to Calvary so I won't forget his agony. Take me to Calvary so I won't forget the love of Christ for me. Take me to Calvary so I won't forget his thorn-crowned brow because I want to make him the king of my life. I want to bear my cross in life like he bore his. And I want to bring sweet gifts to him in the gloom of the morning when his body wasn't there because he's a resurrected Savior in this little song. What is the cure for the danger and risk of forgetting these four things? Lead me to Calvary, which is what John 19 has done for us. That's why November is different for us. We're making it different because God has led us to John 19. 
By gospels like John is a cure. By baptism is a cure. Baptist baptism is a cure because the Bible tells us there are three things that bear record of Jesus Christ on earth. The Spirit, the water, baptism, and the blood, the Lord's Supper. 2,000 years of memorials made for the Lord Jesus Christ and communion is the one we have today. The first verse, Asaph, Carnell, the first verse should be sung first and last because of its commitment. Because we go to Calvary and come from Calvary that way. Who is king? King of my life, I crown thee now. Who is king? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the glorious Son of God that John has taught us about. Whose life is he king of? Your life, my brethren. The one that God gave you. The life God gave you. Your existence that he gave you. The one thing he wants from you is your life. King of my life. What life? Every part of your existence. All of your accomplishments. All of your aspirations are his. King of my life. Who crowns whom? You must do so yourself. No one else's choice matters. You crown him. King of my life, I crown thee now. What crown do you give him? You actively make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. He is the Lord of your life. Passively, but we want him to be the Lord of our lives actively by our choice. And when should we do it? What does the song say? I crown thee now. Not at a convenient season, not almost, not pilot, out of sight, out of mind. Now, king of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. Anything we're able to accomplish, anything anyone accomplishes, anything that exists in the universe, let's give it all to the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. Thine shall the glory be. We don't want any of our own. All his. Let's sing, Lead Me to Calvary, five verses with the first verse sung again at the end. Please. <laughs> 